Good morning. Our brother Todd wrote that song. That's his offering before the Lord. Uh, And it's a song he and I have had the pleasure of doing a particular men's retreat together for a couple of years now. And we just did that this weekend. And so uh, I'll pick a a, something that we happen to be talking about. And uh, God has so gifted him to be able to uh, write a song for it. And he, he gives him that gift, and it's a gift for all of us, so I'm delighted that he had the opportunity to share that with us this morning. Uh, and if you have ever read Psalm 90, you'll notice that's, that that particular song that he wrote follows it uh, continually, and, so, and it captures uh, the heart of our message today, though I'll have to observe that uh, most of the songs sung today uh, did as well, which uh, God has always sweet and uh, uh, gives us uh, great provision in that sense. Uh, We get to enjoy His providence. Well, we are going to be looking at Psalm 90 this morning. I'm going to start off with a conversation I had with uh, Miss Linda Joyce, though uh, in her uh, age at this point, she doesn't remember it. It happened two weeks ago, after all. Um, She didn't think I'd really say that. So, You know, we were talking about the mortality of man, because we talk about such uh, uplifting conversations in the church office, if you ever wondered. Um, And we're talking about the perspective that comes at various times in our lives. She just remembered. She's like, I do remember that conversation. (laughs) You know, at 20, we get in our 20s and we come... To, to the realization that, hey, I'm an adult now, I mean, whatever that means, right? Uh, come 30, the realization is, well, I'm not 20 anymore, <laughs> and that feels like some, some kind of a destination. Um, by 40, I can tell you, because I'm there, a couple of other things become clear. For one, I'm not getting any younger. Uh, Not only am I not getting younger, I'm not even staying the same. (laughs) Um, Just ask Bruce. He's gone through uh, great physical trials of late. He'll tell you uh, he's not the man he once was, for better and worse. Um, And you know, I've observed the wisdom of Linda uh, as as we shared, and she confirmed, and and I have to take her word and the testimony of others because I've not yet experienced it, um, that at 50 you begin to really feel gravity take effect. Uh, It becomes a reality that you've never had to trifle with uh, as much as you do then. Um, And as gravity takes its effect, you start to descend down the hill of life and you get the sense that it's pulling you ever more towards the grave ultimately by 60 you sense the fleeting nature of life and you realize looking back how fleeting the years really are and you consider as Linda did in our conversation how few years you really do have left By 70, if you make it that far, you've got a profound realization of your mortality. 
and the quick approaching reality of death. Now, I just saw Yvonne Courtney say amen. <laughs> it's only funny because you're in the next one. <laughs> I see the Learys over there too. You know, if you've had the pleasure of being around godly men and women who make it to 80, <laughs> you see some great wisdom, you know. They have... Uh, They've gotten past the curve, and they're just thankful for every day they have left. And uh, if you've spent time with people such as the Courtney's or Leary's, you get that sense of profound thankfulness for every moment that they have left. Um, there was a mentor of mine, a wise, godly man. I was mentored, him by, mentored by him when he was in his 50s, and he made a statement. And from time to time, people make statements, and, and sometimes I, those, those statements don't escape me. I, I remember them. And he said this in reflection of another man who was a mentor of mine, who was uh, much like the Courtney's and the Leary's. He was 80 and just thankful for every day he got. He said, you know in reflection on this man who we both admired and respected. He said, as men get old, they digress into sentimentalism. And it struck me as a peculiar thing to say. Sentimentalism is the excessive expression of feelings of tenderness or sadness or nostalgia in behavior. Um... It could also be a tendency to base actions and reactions more from emotions and feelings than from reason. It's interesting. He's approaching 70 now, that same man. And I suspect if I asked him, he would change his statement by one word and one word only. I suspect he would say, for he's been through a dark day of the soul and, and he has a perspective that that extra 20 years tends to give, I suspect he would say, you know, as men grow older, they progress into sentimentalism. Not digress. As you consider the short vapor of life, and I suspect as I look at you now, you might be beginning to. you might come to exclaim with the writer of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. In retrospect, the days of your life don't amount to much more than vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Life's a vapor. And by the way, don't worry. I'm going to take you up to the edge of the cliff and don't jump. There's great hope awaiting, okay? Sorry. My brother Todd told me, make sure you give the qualification. You might have people jumping before you get there. But you know what? We need to look at this fallen reality as it truly is. Uh, you know, we have a tendency to look back on our lives and only look at the highlights, which is not all a bad thing. 
the, the bad thing is when you now define that life as only your highlights. Uh, I knew a guy in seminary that I went to school with. He, he was actually on 2020. He has this sickness, and I'll call it a sickness, of perfect total recall. He can recall every single second and every single detail of his entire life. And I mean every bit of it. And on first you think, well, that is extraordinary. You know, it's so amazing. And he in a very somber and serious way says, it is a tremendous curse and a great burden to remember every single detail of one's life. He doesn't have the advantage of time that tends to make you forget that in the end, life amounts to vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And this one who can recall every detail will tell you, uh, be thankful that you cannot. Well, the reflections of the author of Ecclesiastes are the reflections of an old man who's seen his days and he comes to terms with the fact that they are fleeting. And in a lot of this, the reason that once told you to toil and make something of yourself, even at great cost and peril, fades into the backdrop of vanity of vanities, all is vanity. When one goes through this, they come out on the other side and reason, as they once saw it, isn't quite so reasonable anymore. You see, as the experiences of life and the wisdom that comes with age start to give perspective, a person comes to realize that things aren't as they once understood them. You no longer live life in the naivety of youth. This is a wisdom that I'm going to call retrospective perspective. It's a perspective that comes with great experience and the ability to look back and understand life anew. It reminds me of the autobiography I once went out to write. I'd entitled, and all I got was to the title, uh, Well, That Didn't Work. <laughs> this is the wisdom that age and the hindsight that is 2020-ish, or maybe at least not as uninformed as it once was, brings with it. A retrospective perspective on life. Well, we are going to Psalm 90, so here we come to Moses in Psalm 90. And I'm so thankful, it's such a providence of God that I would have even come to Psalm 90. And I was really reflecting on it because it had impacted me great. And then I realized, oh, Todd's been speaking on the life of Moses. This, this fits perfectly. And I went and told him, and he was really excited. He said, yeah, it really does. Please do that. And so uh, in Psalm 90, it's interesting. Um, Moses, this is a psalm attributed to Moses. And even if Moses didn't write it, and it was a post-exilic writer, just for those of you who might care a lot about that, uh, everyone would agree that that writer is reflecting on the life of Moses and where he was. So um, Moses is such a man that has this retrospective perspective. And he shares with us that perspective from his vantage point. 
And it's one that gives us great insight and wisdom. Uh, It's funny, Psalm 90 is actually set up as a psalm of lament. And I'll just be honest, in our day and age and in our culture, you'll rarely hear anybody preach on something that has to do with lament. Uh, However, I will give you courage that, uh, well, we'll get to it. This psalm of lament, i got to take you up to the cliff. I can't let you off yet. This psalm of lament, Moses, the man of God, prays for God's people in the wilderness. The psalm is a reflecting of this old man, Moses, on the passing of life. He's at the end. And at the end, you'll see this with men. They stop arguing with anyone who has the time or energy. They stop seeking vengeance against anyone. What good would that do? And they stop seeking justification for themselves because they know, alas, add up my days and they don't amount to justification. He's at his end. And he's coming to realize a couple things. He's coming to realize what life means and even more importantly, what this life does not mean. And I suspect like most all of us, if not every one of us, he started off with a very limited understanding. We can see this when he went and took deliverance in his own hands, right? When he went to deliver his people as a 40-year-old man. I need to be cautious about how wise I think I am at 40. (laughs) I suspect it doesn't amount to much. He took deliverance in his own hands. And he came to be disqualified as a deliverer because he had blood on his hands, didn't he? And so he escapes. And presumably, this was for the good of God's people, ironically enough. Um, And here around 40, he has to flee into exile. And imagine having to work out your life at that point, having been uh, someone high up in the house of Pharaoh one who commanded great influence, great power, and in one brief fleeting moment threw it all away. Imagine the next 40 years out in nowhere land considering that quick action. And it's interesting, as he lives out this time, God does come to him and reveals himself to him in the burning bush, doesn't he? And he speaks to Moses. Moses, by now, is approaching 80. And I suspect at 80, the reality of mortality was quickly closing in. And he understood, my days aren't long. He also understood, and I have very little to offer. You see, God had been preparing his heart those 40 years and given him the humility he needed to be the instrument of God to accomplish one of the most significant works of God and one that would be paradigmatic for God's work in all creation, the Exodus. You see, this humility of a retrospective perspective which amounted to, I have nothing to offer, uh, made him ready to be used by God 
from whom all blessings flow. And so God miraculously delivers the Israelites from the greatest empire of the world and plunders that empire and gives them to Israel and destroys that empire and its armies. And by the way, what did Moses do in all that? I suspect if you added up all the things that Moses did, it wouldn't add up to much. It might only add up to one thing. I did whatever seemingly foolish things you gave me to do, God. And quite contrary to how those acts added up, you accomplished a great and magnificent work. To you be the glory and to you alone. Well, by this time, he's in his 120s now as he writes his psalm. And you know what that next 40 years looked like, right? You see, our rationale would say, look, he's really coming about. His life is going to progress to where it crescendos to utter greatness at the end of his days, right? Isn't that our expectation? Funny, life doesn't work out that way, really. That's a very, very false progressivist gospel that isn't really true. The next 40 years are spent with God's great judgment on them who are disobedient and rebellious and who, though seeing the great works of God, continually turn to idols and entrust themselves to those rather than to the God who miraculously delivered them against all odds. So 40 years of wandering, 40 years of the wrath of God breaking out upon thousands of people. You might imagine being an 80-year-old or 90. I had a friend die this week, close friend. And it makes you consider the fleeting nature of life. And I thought of the Learys and the Courtney's, and I wondered how many of their friends and of their family they've seen expire over the years. Miss Courtney, sometimes you might feel like you're the only one left, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, Moses has seen this. He's seen the people perish. Friends, people he camped next to in those times. People that he saw a great work of God among at some time, and he watched them perish. And so he brings great wisdom and perspective. And he saw them swept away in God's fury because they had sinned. And he's come to see that there are long-standing consequences for sin and disobedience in this life. He also comes with the haunting reality and take note, guys. Life is, it can't be started over again, just so you know. We've all lived in the consequences of decisions we've made in life, haven't we? No, life can't be started again, and specific choices we make, once they're made, can't be taken back. Boy, don't we wish they could, but they can't. And so... The lament of the wise, and I bet you all have heard this said before, and I bet many of you have said it. If I only knew now, 
If I only knew then what I know now. Yeah, the wise don't sing the songs of Sinatra. I did it my way. And they don't say, if I could do it all over again, I'd do it just the same. The wise don't say words like these. You know what they say? If I only knew then what I know now. Here's the next part. I'd do it a lot differently. And it doesn't mean they're not thankful. It doesn't mean they haven't seen God do a great work. It means they've gained the perspective that comes with retrospective wisdom. The reason they once used as a young, vigorous person they now see as foolish and oftentimes disobedience that caused a long path of consequences. Well, Moses' petition here is going to be for a failed generation. And his petition becomes that in these final days, says the 120-year-old, that they might be guided in wisdom. A wisdom found in faithfulness to God. But it's interesting, this petition is simultaneously for the next generation. That they would have better success in following the Lord. And it's funny, the prospect of God's continuing work gives this old man great hope. And it encourages here, here in the final days of his life. That God will continue his great work from generation to generation. So, despite the fleeting disparities and vanities of life, this eternal God gives that old man great hope. And that the good work that he began, he will complete one day. So, interestingly, and now I'll give you a little resolve. While Psalm 90 is written as a communal lament in light of the intense awareness of mortality and sin while 40 days in the wilderness, what underlies it all is an extreme hope in God ultimately accomplishing his purposes through all generations. For in the end, and as the song said, God is eternal, and therein lies our hope. Well, let's look at this great psalm. Let's look at what it has to say to us. You have a sense of where we're going. So let's take the ride and see where it leads us. Psalm 90, verse 1. And I'm just going to exposit it as we go here, okay? Follow along. Lord, he claims, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Let me tell you what that means real quick. He addresses him as Lord, the sovereign, the one who has all majesty. And by the way, in the end, he will too, so it's important. He says, Lord, the one who sovereignly rules heaven and earth, you and you alone have been our dwelling place. That, that particular word, dwelling place, means, God, you have been our refuge, our place of provision. All things have come from you. You have been the one from whom all things have come from generation to generation. You have been our provider. You have been the place in which we are protected. Imagine the scene here, okay, guys? They've come from being slaves in a miraculous way, and they've dwelled in a wilderness. By the way, a wilderness to an ancient Near Eastern is considered non-existence. Do you know why? 
because you can't live there. And yet here they have lived with God in their midst, providing manna in the morning for them to eat, providing water from a rock, and providing his presence that has protected and leaded and guided them. You, O oh God, are our dwelling place in all generations. And then he reflects on the continuing nature of God as our dwelling place in verse 2. He, he compares God to the most lasting things in creation. Follow along. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The idea is this. You are our dwelling place, our provision, and our portion in this life. You always have been, and you always will. And yet, you even have these most lasting things in creation, and it's going to create a turn right here. Get ready. We're going to walk up to the cliff again real quick. You turn man back into dust. You say, return, O children of men. He's actually hearkening to Genesis 3, here, Genesis 3 here. Man is from dust, which in the ancient Near East means one thing and one thing only. Man is mortal. Yet man existed in the Garden of Eden where God dwelt in God's dwelling place. And as, God ex as men existed in God's dwelling place, they feasted from the tree of life where they could live forever even though they're mortal. And yet man had rebelled against God, did he not? And he took wisdom for himself because see, wisdom is to be gained in an abiding relationship. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And man wanted to forsake that abiding relationship whereby he's a complete dependent on God and take it for himself so he could be like God. Not thine, but my will be done to be like God. And he rebelled and he forsook that dwelling place where his provision and his protection and all the pleasures of God dwelled. And then do you remember what God said? We have to set him outside of this dwelling place or else in this cursed state, he would take from the tree of life and live forever. Both a curse and judgment and simultaneously blessing that a cursed life would not live, last forever. The psalmist here is hearkening and remembering that, that to dust we return, O God. For a thousand years in your sight, or like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. He's saying our lives are so fleeting in light of your eternal plan that they're seemingly insignificant. They're like yesterday was to you, even today. How significant was yesterday in the full course of your life? Another day. And, and then he goes even further, not even like yesterday like a watch in the night, four hours. And it's interesting, the watch in the night. It brings about, for them, a reality. The watch of the night, by that second hour, you know, you're waiting to go to bed or to be done. Man, this is lasting forever. You ever felt that way before? Maybe those last 30 minutes before the end of the day at school? Come on, it's like 30 years, isn't it? Yeah. The last hour at work on Friday, come on. It's like, oh my goodness, 
It's been a decade. Will this decade end? That's the way a watch of the night is. It first seems long, but in four hours it's over, and you're like, oh, that was nothing. (laughs) I'm going to go have my weekend. Uh, That's the way the watch of the night was. It was seemingly insignificant. It was fleeting. Verse 5, you have swept them away like a flood. They they fall asleep. So you have swept away our lives and they end like a flood. They are sudden and sweeping. And it notes the frailty of life. One day everything's fine. The flood comes suddenly and sweeps all of your life away. And in in an instant it's gone. And he uses another illustration here. In the morning, they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Ready? Watch. Here we go. I, get to, I love that you all sit here. In the morning, it's got great vigor, doesn't it? Great hope and great potential, great strength. It sprouts anew in the morning. But by the evening... It withers away. Your vigor is gone like that. Do you remember being young? The naive hope you had about the vitality of life you possessed and all the great things you thought you would do? Some of you might still be living in that reality. I sometimes digress to it. And even when we do, we know that's not true. (laughs) Well, in the evening, it fades and it withers. It quickly fades away and is fleeting. Four. And this is, he's going to reflect on why. Why is it that why? Why, when things in this earth last so long, does man and man's life fleet so quickly? So Moses here, an old man, is going to come to terms with the reality that really exists there of why life is so fleeting. He says, For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. We've been terrified by your wrath, and your anger has spent us. Why would it? Well, let's keep. It's funny, his rationale goes backwards here, all right? You are consumed, you are brought to the end. Why? Because you were terrified by his anger. Why would you be terrified by his anger? Well, very clearly in these next verses, for God has placed our iniquities before him. Moses says to God, you have placed our iniquities before you. And get ready, imagine this. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. Let me work back the other way. Ready? God sees all things, even our secret sins. And because of that, and because our sense of His justice, we are utterly terrified. And eventually, our lives expire. Moses comes to the reality that why is life so fleeting? Because of sin. Because things ain't right. Listen to the profundity of his reflection. This old man that has retrospective perspective. Listen to how he considers these things. He says, For all our days have declined 
in your fury. He, he doesn't have the naivety of youth or the enlightenment progressivism of our day to think everything's getting better. It's a crescendo until I finally rise to all the greatness that I am and accomplish all the things I aspire to accomplish. It just keeps going. It just, I just keep getting better. Things just keep be- getting better. And the old man goes, oh, just wait a little while. Just wait a little while. No, he doesn't have that naivety anymore. He says, our days decline. He says this, at last we finish our years like a sigh. This is so amazing. A sigh here. That, that, That concept is this. You ready? Upon extended meditation on the realities of my life, it moves me physically and vocally to respond to that reality. And here's what that full 120 years of life of Moses adds up to. Ready? It's like this. This is the wise man of God. This was also the friend of mine who had perfect recall. He couldn't get away from the perfect recall of all that life has for us here on this earth. And his response verbally and physically upon the curse of not being able to but recall every minute is, oh, it ends in a sigh. Are you at the cliff edge? Don't jump. Here comes the turn. He reflects on why this is so. Why is it so? And he says, who, it's a rhetorical question, by the way. Who understands, oh, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. It doesn't turn yet. One more verse. As for the days of our life, They contain 70 years. If you got great strength, maybe 80. If you're a Courtney, a little bit more. And their pride, the best of all of those years, if you added them up and heaped them up in a big mound, here's what it equals. But labor and sorrow. Now you're at the cliff edge, right? Good. Here comes the turn. Who understands the power of your anger, God? We don't understand the power of your anger. We don't understand what our sin means. We don't understand the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is actually due you. The idea is this, God. If we knew you as you were, we wouldn't sin. If we saw you as you were and understood the power and and, and in that sense of power, the justice of your anger. We wouldn't say, it's not fair that this is what life amounts to. We would say, oh God, that you've even given us any life. We are unworthy. If we understood the power of his anger and his fury, we wouldn't clamor for justice in our lives. No. We would show him the fear that was due him. We would fall as a dead man before him and say, 
woe is me. I'm ended, God. I didn't see you as you were. And so he turns to a petition. Because we don't know you, God, as you are, which is really why we sin. Otherwise, in fear, we wouldn't sin. He says, so teach us. Teach us. Make us to understand. Make us to know you. Make us to see you as you are. And teach us to number our days. This is the idea of let us to see you in all that you are. And in light of you, let us order the remainder of our days according to the wisdom that knowing you would bring. God, give us the wisdom of who you are so that we can order our lives in response to who you are with the fear that is due you, with the abiding trust, with the dependent protection that you offer, God. Teach us so that the rest of our days, here's Moses at 120, Lord, teach me who you are so that the rest of my days from 120, I could order them in a way that would that would be in keeping with the heart of the wise. Let me order my days. Let me order my life in such a way that I could present to you a heart of wisdom, he says. Wisdom is skill in living. Wisdom has to do with this. Living your life according to the design and intent of the Creator for both all of creation and your life. He says, God, teach me. Reveal yourself to me so that I could align my life with according to the design and intent you have for all creation. That's his prayer. And then he says, Oh, do return, O Lord, or relent from your fury. Relent. Dude, Lord, turn from your wrath. Return, O Lord. How long will it be? That's the urgency. Oh Lord, relent from your wrath. How long will it be till you relent? And be sorry for your servants, God. Turn from your wrath and turn in compassion to we who, those sinners, God, we're your servants. God, we love you. And while we're deserving and take responsibility for the wrath and the death that we experience in a fallen world, Lord, we petition you that you would teach us to order our days and that you would turn from your fury and instead turn to us in compassion and in favor, God. Be sorry. Be compassionate for your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness. The idea is this. Satisfy us with your covenant love, for after all, we are your servants, God. The morning is not a literal. The morning is satisfy us with your covenant love and make it like it's the dawning of a new day. Let your covenant love to us in compassion and not wrath be like the dawning of a new day, a new time in my life where I number my days according to the wisdom upon you revealing yourself to us and teaching us, God. He says, because the result of that, if, if you should satisfy us 
with the dawning of a new day of your covenant love, we would sing for joy and be glad, not just this day, but all the days of our life. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us. Here's the idea, ready? Give us the number of days of blessing and covenant love that fills us up and satisfies us, God. The same number that we have suffered and languished and lived in the futility of the fall and death. God, turn in your compassion and give us as many days in joy that we've had in sorrow. God, turn towards us. And then he says, Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Here's the idea, ready? Bear your arm into the reality of this life and let us see your great works. Let us see your great works because our pleasure, there's a 60-year-old man that comes to this and, and, and he's a wise man. And this is what he says at 60. You ready? I love this statement. He said, I'm so sick of me. I'm so sick of me. He realizes he's the victim of himself, really. Nothing else. And he says, I'm so sick of me. I'm sick of my works. I'm sick of the things I strive for. Their futility. I'm so sick of me. And do you know what the longing of his heart is? God, let me see you. Let me see your miraculous work that doesn't come from my toil and striving. Your miraculous work that enters in to time and space. Let us see your works, God, because my satisfaction is in your dwelling place where I see your works, where I see the glory of who you are because my hope is not in the amount of things that I do or live or anything. My hope, God, is that I see you, that I see your works. Show us your works, God. In that, we will be satisfied. And then he turns in showing us your works, your servants, show your majesty to our children. Let our children see the splendor of your rule and majesty and even align their lives on the front end. Show your great work to us, your servants, so that our children might see and respond rightly to you in all your majesty. You see his hope turning to God's faithfulness even in that next generation. And he says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Let your pleasantness, your favor, your covenant loving kindness be upon us. Lord God, the Lord, our dwelling place. He's hearkening back to the beginning of that psalm. Oh Lord, you're our dwelling place. Oh Lord, our dwelling place the place where we have all things and are satisfied by you and your providential love. Oh God, let your pleasantness be upon us in your favor. And then comes this last thing, and I suspect this should hit everybody really, really hard. And I'm going to return to it in a moment. Confirm for us the works of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. You see, at the end of a life lived, in light of the futility, in light of your life 
adding up to a sigh at the end of it, you wonder what it was all for. And you know what you come to realize? The works of your hands don't add up to greatness. And if you haven't realized that, I'll give you a clue. They won't. And so the prayer of the old man is, God, bear your arm and in the seeming futility of our lives, confirm the works of our hands. It's an interesting prayer. I do have two things I want to do real quick, and I think I'll be able to do it. For one, I want you to know this. His petition ultimately is fulfilled in the gospel. And I'm going to read, I, I rewrote this psalm in light of the gospel, and I want you to hear it very clearly. Okay? All biblical. You'll hear it biblical, and you'll hear all the words of this psalm given in this gospel. I want you to hear it. You ready? Jesus makes God to be our dwelling place forever. That is the good news, by the way. He is the creator who is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the judge who sweeps sinners away like a flood. This is all Jesus, by the way. Yet, he takes on the wrath of God on our behalf. Burying the punishment of death for our iniquities and secret sins before God the Father. His days declined. Jesus' days declined into the fury of God and ended in a sigh on the cursed cross of Calvary where the power of God's anger was poured out upon His Son so that we may come to see Him as He is. What was the hope of obedience? That we would see Him as He is. And give Him the fear and, and, and that we would see Him as He is and give God the fear that is due Him. You see, because Jesus is wisdom who coming into the world revealed God and showed us that he was the way, the truth, and the life. He showed ultimate skill in living as he fully submitted his life to the will of the Father. And guess what that added up to? Death, death on the cross, as he proclaimed, not mine, but thine will be done. As he prayed that the cup of suffering be removed from him. In Christ's death, God showed his ultimate justice and made a way for God to turn back from divine judgment and towards compassion and divine blessing. Aren't you glad you didn't jump? At the resurrection of Jesus, a new day dawned. The love of God had overcome death, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Jesus also ascended into heaven, where he rules at the right hand of the Father and sent his Spirit, God, very God, the Helper, to inhabit the newly cleansed temple of the church. God dwells among us. He is our dwelling place. He has made us his dwelling place permanently and has granted us favor. He is now powerfully at work in us and through us accomplishing his purposes and is manifesting his work to his glory in the church. God has borne his arm finally in the church for all the world to see. And when we too are raised, He will confirm the work of our hands as we receive our crown and at once throw it to the feet of the one to whom it is due, Jesus our Lord. 
death loses and God is all and in all and dwells among his people forever. And we will again feast from the tree of life and the Lord will reign forever. Amen. Amen. And let me give these few quick warnings that Paul gives us in light of this generation in Psalm 90 that because that's the now. You know, that stuff has happened in the past in Christ's work. It is happening right now. And in the end, it ultimately will happen. But have you noticed that not yet is also a dynamic of this life? We still identify with Moses in many respects, don't we? But we know the good work that he began, he will complete. But here's Paul and the writer of Hebrews admonition to us in light of that generation who is disobedient. They say this. Paul reminds believers in Corinth that, um, well, first of all, yeah, that these things were written to warn us not to sin as they did and perished in the wilderness. Paul writes what he writes so that you won't sin, so you'll see God as he is, not sin and perish in the wilderness so that your lives will be a blessing, that they'll be ordered rightly according to the wisdom of God. The writer of Revelation, John, writes letters to the churches who are, have had corporate disobedience and gives warnings of God's dealings with collective disobedience. Warnings that sound like this, 2.22, suffering. 2.16, a decree of destruction. This is for the church. There is a not yet to this. Not ultimate, but in this life. To repay according to deeds. To remove one's witness or to spew out of his mouth. So we have the writer of Hebrews who says this, Therefore, in light of that generation, in light of God's fury that can still break out even now, though ultimately he will deliver us through Christ, even now it can break out. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, be diligent to enter the Sabbath rest. That the Sabbath rest, by the way, it's not my ties and uh, a hammock on the beach. That's not the Sabbath rest. Notice Jesus heals on the Sabbath and Jesus eats with his disciples on the Sabbath and labors because my father is laboring right now. Why would I not be laboring? You see, the Sabbath rest is to carry out the design and intent, intent of God in all the world. The Sabbath rest is to do the work that he has given us to do. He says, therefore, in light of that generation, be diligent to do the work that God has given you to do. And he says, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience as the generation in Psalm 90 is speaking of. And he goes on to say this, so if you have, here, here's the writer of Hebrews' exhortation to you. He says this, Because of the compassion of our high priest Jesus, we need to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And finally, Paul gives an instruction that is the sum of all this psalm, and I want you to hear it from Ephesians. He says this, be very, I'll add to it, very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. We often think the, world, the Lord's will is a vision of grandeur. Let me tell you what it is because I have to give the key to the song. When life seems to be particularly particular to me, I don't understand your plan. 
when I try to judge for myself my life and add it up to the universal salvation of God, let me give you a little clue. Ready? It doesn't add up. And if I took all of you and I added it all up, guess what? It doesn't add up. And if I took the history of the world from Genesis to Revelation and all the deeds of the saints and all the great workings of God, guess what? It doesn't add up. And nor does your life or anything that you do add up to the universal salvation of God. Because here's his paradigm. Ready? Here's what his deliverer looks like. Ready? He's born in Nazareth. Sorry, scumbag from Nazarene of a lowly carpenter. And he never has a place to lay his head. And the culmination of his work was 12 disciples who were dirty old fishermen from Galilee. (laughs) Are these the fishermen from Galilee? And the height of his ministry, it was a healing ministry. Well, people came to him because they healed him. By the way, the same people who forsook him and said, give us Barabbas, but crucify Jesus. What an amounting of a great ministry, yes? And his 12 disciples all forsook him. And here's the crescendo of Jesus' life. Ready? Cursed death on the cross at the hands of the great empire of the world. Does that sound how you would write universal salvation? Sound like a plan you'd come up with? Your life is the same. The vision you have for your life of amounting to greatness isn't the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life of Jesus, you ready? Is doing the work that the Father has given even when it doesn't amount to to what you would think great works of God amount to. It's a prayer that you would take the fleeting futility of our lives, the particularity of insignificance in our lives, and the 70 years that are nothing in the history of the world, and that you would bear your great and powerful arm, O God, and accomplish a great work among us, and accomplish universal salvation for the world. Not because our lives add up to it, no, God, Because in the end, you are our dwelling place from generation to generation. You are our hope and our life, and we got nothing else. And so here we are in this wilderness, and we entrust ourselves to you, God. Help us to number our days and align them according to the wisdom, the wisdom of God that's not of this world, the wisdom that's as far as the east is from the west from us. Don't judge your life. You have no wisdom. Instead, entrust it to the one who will miraculously accomplish further than you could ever hope or imagine. Number your days and offer to God a heart of wisdom, a heart of Moses as 80 who says, God, I got nothing to to offer you. And God goes, perfect. That's what I'm looking for. The Jesus is of the world, the weak and despised from whom I'll build my kingdom because the point is you got nothing to offer but to offer yourself to God and allow him to miraculously accomplish his work. Go order and number your days to the glory of God. You're dismissed.